My beloved brethren, this has been a glorious meeting. I realize you've only heard from two speakers plus our visitor, but it's still a glorious meeting. And I thank the Lord for it, for my counselors, for this man who has had the courage and the faith to accept the gospel and live it. I hope he lives it. I have been especially pleased to see the number of young men in attendance this evening. With all my heart, I love the youth of the Church. I have spent much of my life in their service, and their well-being and happiness are among my greatest concerns. Tonight, I would like to speak directly to young men of the Aaronic Priesthood. I am grateful that many of your fathers and priesthood leaders are with you, for I would like them to hear my message also. Young men of the Aaronic Priesthood, you have been born at this time for a sacred and glorious purpose. It is not by chance that you have been reserved to come to earth in this last dispensation of the fullness of times. Your birth at this particular time has been foreordained in the eternities. You are to be the royal army of the Lord in the last days. You are youth of a noble birthright. In the spiritual battles you were waging, I see you as today's sons of Helaman. You may remember that story in the Book of Mormon. Remember well the Book of Mormon account of Helaman's 2,000 stripling warriors and how the teachings of their mothers gave them strength and faith. These marvelous mothers taught them to put on the whole armor of God, to place their trust in the Lord, and to doubt not. By so doing, not one of these young men was lost. My young brethren, I counsel each of you to draw close to your own mother. Respect her. Honor her. Receive your mother's counsel as she loves and instructs you in righteousness. And honor and obey your father as he stands at the head of the home emulating his manly qualities. Young men, the family unit is forever. I testify to you that I know this.
and you should do everything in your power to strengthen that unit. It is your own family. Encourage family home evenings and be active as a participant. Encourage family prayer and be on your knees when your family is in that sacred circle. Do your part to develop real family unity and solidarity. In such homes, there is no generation gap. Your most important friendships should be with your own brothers and sisters and with your father and mother. Love your family. Be loyal to them. Have a genuine concern for your brothers and sisters. Help carry their load so you can say, like the lyrics of the song, He ain't heavy, he's my brother. Remember the family is one of God's greatest fortresses against the evils of our day. Help keep your family strong and close and worthy of our Father in Heaven's blessings. As you do, you will receive faith and strength, which will bless your lives forever. Next, young men, may I admonish you to participate in a program of daily reading and pondering of the scriptures. We remember the experience of our beloved Prophet President Spencer W. Kimball. As a 14-year-old boy, he accepted the challenge of reading the Bible from cover to cover. Most of his reading was done by a coal oil lamp in his attic bedroom. He read every night until he completed the 1,519 pages, which took him approximately a year, but he attained his goal. Of the four great standard works of the Church—the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price— I would particularly urge you to read again and again the Book of Mormon and ponder and apply its teachings. The Book of Mormon was referred to by the Prophet Joseph Smith as the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. Young men, the Book of Mormon will change your life. It will fortify you against the evils of our day. It will bring a spirituality into your life no other book will. It will be the most important book you will read in preparation for a mission 
and for life. A young man who knows and loves the Book of Mormon, who has read it several times, who has an abiding testimony of its truthfulness, and who applies its teachings, will be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and will be a mighty tool in the hands of the Lord. Further, I would encourage you, brethren of the Aaronic Priesthood, to receive a patriarchal blessing. Study it carefully and regard it as a personal scripture to you. For that indeed is what it is. A patriarchal blessing is the inspired and prophetic statement of your life's mission together with blessings, cautions, and admonitions as the patriarch may be prompted to give. Young man, receive your patriarchal blessing under the influence of fasting and prayer, and then read it regularly that you may know God's will for you. May I direct your attention to the importance of attending all of your church meetings. Faithful attendance at church meetings brings blessings you can receive in no other way. Attend your sacrament meetings every Sunday. Listen carefully to the messages. Pray for the spirit of understanding and testimony. Be worthy to prepare and bless and pass the sacrament. Come to the sacrament table with clean hands and a pure heart. Attend your Sunday school classes every Sunday. Listen carefully to the lessons and participate in class discussions. Gospel scholarship and an increase in testimony will result. Attend your priesthood choral meetings every Sunday and your choral activities held if they are on weeknights. Learn well your priesthood responsibilities and then perform them with diligence and reverence. Young man, take full advantage of the church, church programs. Set your goals to attain excellence in the achievement programs of the Church. Earn the Duty to God Award, one of our most significant priesthood awards. Become an Eagle Scout. Do not settle for mediocrity in the great scouting program of the Church. Regularly attend seminary and be a seminary graduate. Seminary instruction is one of the most significant spiritual experiences a young man can have. May I now speak with you about missionary service in the kingdom. You have heard the words 
of President Hinckley tonight, you have heard a testimony of one of our fathers converts to the Church. May I now speak with you about missionary service in the Kingdom. I feel very deeply about this. My father went on a mission, as you may have heard, and left mother at home with seven young children. The eight was born a few months after he arrived in the field. All of their seven children have now filled missions. and are grateful to the Lord for the missionary service they expected. There came into that home a spirit of missionary work that never left it. And I thank the Lord for the great missionary program of the Church. So will you regularly attend seminary and be a seminary graduate? Seminary instruction is one of the most significant spiritual experiences a young man can have. May I now speak with you about missionary service in the Kingdom? I feel very deeply about this. I pray that you will understand the yearning of my heart. The Prophet Joseph Smith declared, after all that has been said, our greatest and most important duty is to preach the gospel. The Lord wants every young man to serve a full-time mission. Presently, only about a fifth of the eligible young men in the world are serving full-time missions. This is not pleasing to the Lord. We can do better. We must do better. Not only should a mission be regarded as a priesthood duty, but every young man should look forward to this experience with great joy and anticipation. What a privilege, what a sacred privilege to serve the Lord full-time for two years with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. You could do nothing more important. School can wait. Scholarships can be deferred. Occupational goals can be postponed. Yes, even temple marriage should be achieved after a young man has served an honorable full-time mission for the Lord. And I would admonish you to date only faithful young women who also believe this and give you that encouragement. Young man, look forward to full-time missionary service. Show your love and commitment to the Lord by responding to the call to serve. Know that the real purpose in going into the mission field 
is to bring souls unto him, to Christ, to teach the baptism, to teach and baptize our Heavenly Father's children, so that you may rejoice with them in the kingdom of our Father. Prepare now for your mission by doing those things we have discussed this evening. Another vital ingredient in preparation for your mission is to always live a clean life. We want morally clean young men in the mission field. We want you to live the clean life all of your life. We want the morally clean life to be your way of life. Yes, one can repent of moral transgressions. The miracle of forgiveness is real, and true repentance is accepted of the Lord. But it is not pleasing to the Lord prior to a mission or at any time to sow one's wild oats to engage in sexual transgression of any nature and then expect that planned confession and quick repentance will satisfy the Lord. President Kimball was emphatic on this point. I commend it to you. In his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, he stated, how much better it is never to have committed sin. That man who resists temptation and lives without sin is far better, far better off than the man who has fallen, no matter how repentant the latter may be. One of our fine stake presidents shared with us the following experience. I remember a girl, he said, that I had gone to high school with. She was from a good LDS home and family. But when she was a junior in high school, she began to compromise her standards and principles. I remember how stunned I was one afternoon as a group of us were in the back of the bus riding home from school, and we were talking about the consequences of sin or transgressions, and she flatly announced that she wasn't worried about committing any sin because her bishop had told her she could easily repent and could be forgiven. Well, I was shocked with this flippant attitude that didn't reflect any understanding of repentance and no appreciation of the miracle of forgiveness. I was also sure that she had grossly misunderstood the 
instruction of the council of her bishop. Adultery or anything like unto it is abominable in the sight of the Lord. President Kimball also wisely observed, among the most common sexual sins our young people commit are necking and petting. Not only do these improper relations often lead to fornication, pregnancy, and abortion, all ugly sins, but in and of themselves they are pernicious evils, and it is often difficult for youth to distinguish where one ends and the other begins. Too often, young people dismiss their petting with a shrug of the shoulders as a little indiscretion while admitting that fornication is a base transgression. To many of them are shocked are fain to be when told that what they have done in the name of petting was in reality a form of fornication. End of quote. Young men of the Aaronic priesthood, remember the scriptural injunction, Be ye clean who bear the vessels of the Lord. Remember the story of Joseph in Egypt, who hearkened not to the wife of Potiphar and maintained his purity and virtue. Consider carefully the words of the prophet Alma to his errant, Aaron's son Coriantumr. Forsake your sins and go no more after the lust of your eyes. The lust of your eyes. In our day, what does that expression mean? Movies, television programs, and video recordings that are both suggestive and lewd. Magazines and books that are obscene and pornographic. We counsel you, young men, not to pollute your minds with such degrading matter, for the mind through which this filth passes is never the same afterwards. Don't see R-rated movies or vulgar videos or appreciate or participate in any entertainment that is immoral suggestive, or pornographic. Don't listen to music that is degrading. Remember, remember Elder Boyd K. Packer's statement, Musing once, once innocent now is often used for wicked purposes. In our day, music itself has been corrupted. Music can, by its tempo, by its beat, by its intensity, and I would add 
by its lyrics dull the spiritual sensitivity of men. Young people, Elder Packer goes on to say, you cannot afford to fill your minds with this unworthy hard music of our day. End of quote. Instead, we encourage you to listen to uplifting music, both popular and classical, that builds the spirit. Learn some favorite hymns from our new hymn book that build faith and spirituality. Attend dances where the music and the lighting and the dance movements are conducive to the spirit. Watch those shows and entertainments that lift the spirit and promote clean thoughts and actions. Read books and magazines that do the same. And remember, young men, the importance of proper dating. President Kimball gave some wise counsel on this subject, and I quote, Clearly, right marriage begins with right dating. Therefore, this warning comes with great emphasis. Do not take the chance of dating non-members or members who are untrained and faithless. You may say, Oh, I do not intend to marry that person. It is just a fun date. But one cannot afford to take a chance on falling in love with someone who may never accept the gospel. End of quote. Our Heavenly Father wants you to date young women who are faithful members of the Church, who encourage you to serve a full-time mission and to magnify your priesthood. Yes, prepare well for a mission all your life, not just six months or a year before you go. We love all of our missionaries who are serving the Lord full-time in the mission field. But there is a difference in missionaries. Some are better prepared to serve the Lord the first month in the mission field than some are who are returning home after 24 months. We want young men entering the mission field who can enter the mission field on the run, who have the faith born of personal righteousness and clean living, that they can have a great and productive mission. We want missionaries who have the kind of faith that Wilfred Woodruff and Heber C. Kimball had, each bringing hundreds and thousands of souls into the waters of baptism. Give me a young man 
who has kept himself morally clean and has faithfully attended his church meetings. Give me a young man who has magnified his priesthood and has earned a Duty to God award and is an Eagle Scout. Give me a young man who is a seminary graduate and has a and has a burning testimony of the Book of Mormon. Give me such a young man, and I will give you a young man who can perform miracles for the Lord in the mission field and throughout his life. Now I would like to say a final word to the fathers and priesthood leaders in attendance this evening. Fathers, stay close to your sons. Earn and deserve their love and respect. Be united with their mother in the rearing of your children. Do nothing in your life to cause your sons to stumble because of your example. Guide your sons. Teach them. As I indicated last October, as we met in general priesthood session, you have the major responsibility for teaching your sons the gospel. I would encourage you to reread that address. As important as the organizations of the Church are for teaching our youth, fathers have a sacred calling to continually teach and instruct members of their families in the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Priesthood leaders, remember that the bishop is the president of the Aaronic priesthood. Bishops, your first and foremost responsibility is the Aaronic priesthood and the young women of your wards. Stay close to your young men. Get inside their lives. A personal interview once a year with them is not sufficient to fulfill your sacred duty. Visit with them often. Attend their quorum and scout meetings. Go on their campouts. Participate in their youth conferences. Promote father and son activities. Talk with them often about the mission and regularly visit with them about their personal worthiness. Strengthen the Aaronic Priesthood Quorums. Effectively use the videotape entitled Vitalizing the Aaronic Priesthood Quorums and the accompanying travel guide. These are some of the finest tools we have in the Aaronic Priesthood. Bishoprics, quorum advisors, and quorum presidencies should regularly use this training program. 
Now, in closing, my young man of the Iranic priesthood, how I love you, how I respect you, and how I pray for you. Remember the counsel I have given you tonight. It is what the Lord would have you hear now, today. Live up to your godly potential. Remember who you are and the priesthood that you bear. Be modern-day sons of Helaman. Put on the whole armor of God. O youth of a noble birthright, with all my heart, I say, carry on, carry on, carry on. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. summer I saw an interesting picture as I followed a car on the freeway. It was a large station wagon that had obviously endured many road skirmishes. The top rack was loaded with luggage. The seats were loaded with people. Four bare feet hung out the rear window, and elbows and arms hung out the side windows. In the front seat, the mother was wrestling with a feisty child while simultaneously trying to calm an upset infant. The father was desperately trying to negotiate the heavy traffic. It was obviously vacation time for this family. <laughs> As I surveyed the situation with some degree of empathy, I noticed a bumper sticker which read, Are we having fun yet? <laughs> I laugh about this scene whenever I recall it. I believe it is amusing to us because it exhibits a wry insight into human nature. It reveals a very real aspect of the human condition, the largely unfulfilled pursuit of happiness. The implications of this question, are we having fun yet, are profound. How many people in this world pursue happiness but find that it eludes them? They contrive pleasures, invent amusements, and invest heavily in recreation. They go abroad in search of this rare gift but fail to see that evidence of it is all around them, the sources within them. As I have occasion to be with wonderful people throughout the world, I am often moved by the many individuals I meet who are looking for happiness 
but not quite finding it. They yearn and strive and endure, but seem to be asking, Am I happy yet? I desire to assure you that happiness is real. It can be experienced here, and we can know a fullness of joy in the hereafter. May I share with you some insights about the kind of happiness promised by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Lehi's words to his son Jacob include a profound truth. All things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. Our wise and loving Father in heaven is concerned for the welfare of his children. He desires to see us happy. The very purpose of our lives can be defined in terms of happiness. The Prophet Joseph Smith said, quote, Happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. Close quote. Our yearnings for happiness were implanted in our hearts by deity. They represent a kind of homesickness for we have a residual memory of our premortal existence. They are also a foretaste of a fullness of joy that is promised to the faithful. We can expect with perfect faith that our Father will fulfill our innermost longings for joy. In fact, the plan He has given to guide us is called the plan of happiness. In the meridian of time, it was heralded by angelic messengers as good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. The Book of Mormon makes it clear that happiness is our destiny. It speaks of dwelling with God in a state of never-ending happiness. It is also made clear that all things shall be restored to their proper order, everything to its natural frame, raised to endless happiness to inherit the kingdom of God or to endless misery to inherit the kingdom of the devil. We also learn that we are raised to happiness according to our desires of happiness. Words such as reap, restored, and desire imply that happiness is a consequence, not a reward. We are restored to a state of happiness when we have chosen to live according to the plan of happiness. Our joy in God's kingdom will be a natural extension of the happiness we cultivate in this life. Our happiness is diminished by at least two things—sin and adversity. Of the two, sin is the most tragic. Sin is the most persistent cause of human suffering, and of the two brings the deepest remorse. Sin and the temptation to do evil are part of our mortal test. We are being tried to see if we will choose good or evil. It is a hard test, and only those who have resisted temptation can know and gain the strength thereof. Sin is sin because it destroys instead of saves. It tears down instead of builds. It causes despair instead of hope. The Book of Mormon speaks of men that are in a carnal state and in the bonds of iniquity. They are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. It also records Samuel the Lamanite's warning to the Nephites 
Ye have sought all the days of your lives for that which ye could not obtain, and ye have sought for happiness in doing iniquity, which thing is contrary to the nature of that righteousness which is in our great and eternal head. The doctrine is concisely summarized by Alma. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. If we are not pure, we would be miserable in the presence of God and Christ, who are by their very nature happy and joyful and cannot look upon sin with any allowance. The suffering that results from sin is most tragic because, through our own choices, we can choose to avoid it. We have that power. We also have the capacity to repent of our sins and to experience the sweet joy of forgiveness. If we are unhappy, let us examine ourselves to see where we need to repent. If we have questions about what we need to do or not do, we need only listen to our conscience and follow the promptings of the Spirit. I am acquainted with a man who rebelled from the Church when he was a youth. He made some mistakes during this time and developed some habits. Eventually, however, he came to himself. He served a mission and returned home to hold many responsible positions in the Church. But he was never quite happy. He could have said, as did Nephi, I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which so do easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Finally, in a night of spiritual turmoil, he confessed to himself that he had never fully forsaken his sins. Although he had not committed sins worthy of Church court action, he still harbored attitudes and thoughts that robbed him of spirituality, and he went through cycles of guilt and despair that dampened his happiness. He made up his mind to change, and he kept his resolve. He broke the chain of sin and despair and for the first time in memory began to experience a real true happiness. If someone had asked him, Are we having fun, experiencing happiness yet? He could have answered, Yes, more happiness or joy than I could have imagined. Striving for happiness is a long, hard journey with many challenges. It requires eternal vigilance to win the victory. You cannot succeed with sporadic little flashes of effort. Constant and valiant living is necessary. That is why patience and faith are so often associated in the scriptures. You must withstand every temptation of the devil with your faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, faith is not a magical formula. It requires that you make a deliberate decision to do good and then carry out your decision. Do it. Simply do it. And do it long enough that you experience success, no matter how hard it may seem. Your victory over self brings commune with God and results in happiness, lasting and eternal happiness. The other thing that may diminish our happiness is adversity. Adversity is also part of our mortal probation, experienced by everyone. It is different, however, from sin. While we can choose to avoid sin, we usually cannot choose whether we experience adversity. I am convinced if we are to have happiness in our hearts, we must learn how to preserve it in our hearts in the midst of trouble and trial. 
We can control our attitude toward adversity. Some people are defeated and embittered by it, while others triumph over it and cultivate godlike attributes in the midst of it. I recall a true story from our pioneer heritage that illustrates how we can choose our response to adversity. Over 100 years ago, a Swedish family who had joined the Church faced a long ocean voyage to America, a train trip from New York to Omaha, and then a trek by wagon train to Salt Lake City. During their train trip, they rode in stock cars used to haul hogs. The cars were filthy and filled with hog lice. On their wagon trip across the plains, a healthy baby was born, but their three-year-old contracted cholera. During the night, the father went to a neighboring wagon to borrow a candle, but was told they couldn't spare one. This angered him, and he fumed as he sat in the dark with his son's limp, feverish body in his arms. The boy died that night. The next morning, the wagon master said they would hold a short, short funeral and bury the boy in a shallow grave. They were in Indian country and didn't have time to do more. The father insisted on staying behind and digging a grave deep enough so the animals would not disturb the body. They experienced other hardships before they reached Salt Lake City. Now both of them experienced the same trials. But the father became withdrawn, cantankerous, and bitter. He stopped going to church found fault with Church leaders. He became caught up in his own miseries, and the light of Christ grew dimmer and dimmer in his life. On the other hand, the mother's faith increased. Each new problem seemed to make her stronger. She became an angel of mercy, filled with empathy, compassion, and charity. She was a light to those around her. Her family gravitated toward her and looked to her as their leader. She was happy. He was miserable. I would offer one key in maintaining your happiness in spite of adversity. Christ said, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. If you would find happiness and joy, lose your life in some noble cause. A worthy purpose must be at the center of every worthy life. President Stephen L. Richards noted that life is a mission, not a career. As Church members, our mission should be the greatest, noblest mission in the universe, the salvation of souls. President David O. McKay was fond of quoting the poet Robert Browning, who said, quote, There is an answer to the passionate longings of the heart for fullness, and I knew it. And the answer is this. Live in all things outside yourself by love, and you will have joy. That is the life of God. It ought to be our life. In Him it is accomplished and perfect, but in all created things it is a lesson learned slowly and through difficulty. Close quote. Service helps us forget our own travails. It enlarges our souls and gives us greater capacity to endure our own trials. Now I have spoken of our Father's plan of happiness, by which He guides us into eternal joy. I have talked about overcoming sin through repentance and self-mastery, and I have spoken of taking the edge off adversity through selfless service. Self-mastery and service are keys to our Father's plan. Christ told His disciples, 
If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in his love. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. The commandments are guides to happiness. I implore you to follow them. Are we having fun yet, experiencing true happiness? I certainly am. I find great joy in life, in obeying and serving. I pray that you may also discover the elusive treasure of true happiness through the means that were ordained by our Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Recently, our family was viewing what was supposed to be a wholesome movie on videotape. Suddenly, one of the actors used a vulgar expression. Embarrassed, we began to smooth this over for our 10-year-old daughter. She quickly assured us that we didn't need to worry because she heard worse than that every day from the boys and girls at her school. I'm sure most LDS parents have had similar experiences. The nature and extent of profanity and vulgarity in our society is a measure of its deterioration. I cannot remember when I first heard profane and vulgar expressions in common use around me. I suppose it was from adults in the barnyard or the barracks. Today, our young people hear such expressions from boys and girls in their grade schools, from actors on stage and in the movies, from popular novels, and even from public officials and sports heroes. Television and videotapes bring profanity and vulgarity into our homes. For many in our day, the profane has become commonplace and the vulgar has become acceptable. Surely this is one fulfillment of the Book of Mormon prophecy that in the last days there shall be great pollutions upon the face of the earth. The people of God have always been commanded to abstain from language that is profane or vulgar. Latter-day Saints should understand why. The names of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ are sacred. The prophet Isaiah taught that the Lord will not suffer these names to be dishonored, polluted, as the scriptures say. In the third of the Ten Commandments, the Lord commanded ancient Israel, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. The same commandment was repeated to the Book of Mormon people by the prophet Abinadi and to each of us through modern prophets. The Doctrine and Covenants gives this example. Let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. For behold, verily I say that many there be who are under this condemnation, who use the name of the Lord and use it in vain, having not authority. Here we learn that we take the name of the Lord in vain when we use that name without authority. This obviously occurs when the sacred names of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ are used in what is called profanity, in hateful cursings, in angry denunciations, or as marks of punctuation in common discourse. 
The names of the Father and the Son are used with authority when we reverently teach and testify of them, when we pray, and when we perform the sacred ordinances of the priesthood. There are no more sacred or significant words in all of our language than the names of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. As we read in the Book of Mormon, after the Savior appeared to the people on this continent, He taught them that they must take upon them the name of Christ. For by this name shall ye be called at the last day, and whoso taketh upon him my name and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved at the last day. He has instructed his followers to call the Church in his name. In our time, this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Savior taught that we should begin our prayers by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In the Book of Mormon, the risen Lord gave these further instructions. Therefore, ye must always pray unto the Father in my name, and whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Pray in your families unto the Father, always in my name, that your wives and your children may be blessed. The scriptures are replete with declarations that the name of Jesus Christ is the only name which shall be given under heaven, whereby salvation shall come unto the children of men. The Bible has hundreds of references to the name of God, a sacred word which usually refers to God the Father or Elohim. The ancient prophets also knew and revered the name of Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, whom the Bible usually refers to as the Lord. These names were so sacred that the children of Israel were repeatedly commanded not to profane the holy name of their God. One who blasphemed the name of the Lord was commanded to be put to death by stoning. Cataloging the sins of his countrymen, the prophet Ezekiel said, Her priests have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane, and I am profaned among them. Throughout the ages, the Lord has directed that whatsoever ye shall do, ye shall do it in my name. God the Father commanded that Adam and Eve and all of their descendants should be baptized in the name of mine only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth, which is Jesus Christ. At the conclusion of his ministry, the risen Lord identified signs that would follow those who believed. In my name they shall do wonderful works. In my name they shall cast out devils. In my name they shall heal the sick. In my name they shall open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. When Peter healed the lame beggar, he spoke these words, Such as I have give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. When the names of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ are used with reverence and authority, they invoke a power beyond what mortal man can comprehend. It should be obvious to every believer that these mighty names 
by which miracles are wrought, by which the world was formed, through which man was created, and by which we can be saved, are holy and must be treated with the utmost reverence. As we read in modern Revelation, remember, that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. So it is that the holy priesthood after the Son of God is called the Melchizedek priesthood, out of respect or reverence to the name of the Supreme Being to avoid the too frequent repetition of His name. The desire and work of Satan is to mislead and corrupt. He seeks to frustrate the gospel plan by which God has provided the opportunity of eternal life for his children. Satan seeks to discredit the sacred names of God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ, the names through which their work is done. He succeeds in a measure whenever he is able to influence any man or woman, boy or girl, to make holy names common and to associate them with coarse thoughts and evil acts. Those who use sacred names in vain are, by that act, promoters of Satan's purposes. Profanity is profoundly offensive to those who worship the God whose name is desecrated. We all remember how a prophet reacted from a hospital bed when an operating room attendant stumbled and cursed in his presence. Even half-conscious, President Kimball recoiled and implored, Please, please, that is my Lord whose names you revile. The words we speak are important. The Savior taught that men will be held to account for every idle word in the Day of Judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. He also said, That which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Truly, as the Apostle James taught, the tongue is a fire, an unruly evil, that can defile the whole body. Profanity also takes its toll on the one who uses it. As we read in Proverbs, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness therein is a breach in the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Ghost, testifies of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. When those names are dishonored, that Spirit, which doth not dwell in unholy temples, is offended and withdraws. For this reason, those who profane the name of God inevitably relinquish the companionship of his spirit. As the Apostle Paul taught Timothy, in order to be approved unto God, we must shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Profanity leads to more ungodliness because the Spirit of the Lord withdraws and the profane are left without guidance. Vulgar and crude expressions are also offensive to the Spirit of the Lord. The Apostle James taught that followers of Christ should be slow to speak, slow to wrath, and should lay apart all filthiness. In the Bible, filthiness is a term associated with sexual sin and with lewd language. 
Thus, Paul was surely condemning vulgarity when he wrote the Colossians, Also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. These biblical condemnations of vulgarity are needed in our day. Indecent and vulgar expressions pollute the air around us. Relations that are sacred between husband and wife are branded with coarse expressions that degrade what is intimate in marriage and make commonplace what is forbidden outside it. Moral sins that should be unspeakable are in the common vernacular. Human conduct plunging downward from the merely immodest to the utterly revolting is written on the walls and shouted in the streets. Twentieth-century men and women of sensitivity can easily understand how Lot, a fugitive from Sodom and Gomorrah, could have been, as the scripture says, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. How soberly we must regard the Book of Mormon teachings that there cannot any unclean thing enter into the kingdom of God, wherefore there must needs be a place of filthiness prepared for that which is filthy. Profane and vulgar expressions are public evidence of a speaker's ignorance, inadequacy, or immaturity. A speaker who profanes must be ignorant or indifferent to God's stern command that his name must be treated with reverence and not used in vain. A speaker who mouths profanity or vulgarity to punctuate or emphasize speech confesses inadequacy in his or her own language skills. Properly used, modern languages require no such artificial boosters. A speaker who employs profanity or vulgarity to catch someone's attention with shock effect engages in a babyish device that is inexcusable as juvenile or adult behavior. Such language is morally bankrupt. It is also progressively self-defeating, since shock diminishes with familiarity, and the user can only maintain its effect by escalating its excess. Members of the Church, young or old, should never allow profane or vulgar words to pass their lips. The language we use projects the images of our hearts, and our hearts should be pure. As the Savior taught, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. The Book of Mormon teaches us that when we are brought before the judgment bar of God, our words will condemn us and our thoughts will also condemn us. Let us recognize profanity and vulgarity for what they are. They are sins that separate us from God and cripple our spiritual defenses by causing the Holy Ghost to withdraw from us. We should abstain and we should teach our children to abstain from all such expressions. We can also encourage our associates to do likewise. Where we have the courage to make a friendly request, like President Kimball, we will often receive a respectful and cooperative reply. Our married daughter, who lives in Illinois, had such an experience. As she took her turn carpooling the 12-year-olds home from the soccer game, her noisy passengers filled the air with profanity. Firmly but with good humor, she told the boys, 
In our family, we only use that name when we worship. So we ask you, please don't say that name disrespectfully in our car. The boys immediately complied. And what is even more surprising, most of them still remembered it the next time it was her turn to drive. We obviously cannot control all that goes on in our presence. Modern Revelation suggests one alternative for those who would be clean. Go ye out from among the wicked. Save yourselves. Sometimes we can remove ourselves from language that is profane or vulgar. If this is not possible, we can at least register an objection so that others cannot conclude that our silence means approval or acquiescence. Our thirteenth article of faith commits us to seek after things that are virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. The language of Latter-day Saints should be reverent and clean. We understand the eternal requirement of cleanliness, and we understand the sacred significance of the names of the Father and the Son. I testify of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and pray that we may be more faithful in honoring their holy names. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brethren and sisters, I greet you with love and sincere appreciation. I seek the direction of the Holy Spirit. Today is the birthday of the Church. It was organized 156 years ago, which was 1830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh. Six men participated as the official incorporating body. Those original six have now become approximately six million. The growth of this work has been a constantly unfolding miracle, and what an exciting and wonderful experience it is to be a part of it. Although storms of adversity have raged against it, it continues to move steadily forward along the course which the Almighty has outlined for it. It does so quietly without great noise and fanfare, touching for good the lives of men and women across the earth. Its mission is not empire-building. Its mission is to teach faith and repentance and to bring truth and gladness to all who will listen and hearken to its message. Five months ago, a solemn gathering was held in this great tabernacle to mourn the passing of a beloved leader. I speak a few words of personal testimony of President Spencer W. Kimball. For 42 years he served as apostle and prophet. His moving example of sincere humility, his outreaching love for people, his quiet and earnest declarations of faith have touched all of us. The majesty of his life was found in its simplicity. There was never any of the ostentatious, the boastful, the proud evident in his character. Yet there was an excellence that shone like gold. He was a man from whose life the husk of mediocrity had been winnowed by the hand of God. I loved him with that love which men in the service of the Lord come to feel and know. Now there is another. 
And during this conference, we shall be constituted a solemn assembly to sustain as prophet, seer, and revelator and President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the man who, under the plan of the Lord, has been chosen, ordained, and set apart to this most high and sacred office. This transition of authority, in which I have participated a number of times, is beautiful in its simplicity. It is indicative of the way the Lord does things. Under his procedure, a man is selected by the prophet to become a member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. He does not choose this as a career. He is called, as were the apostles in Jesus' time, to whom the Lord said, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. The years pass. He is schooled and disciplined in the duties of his office. He travels over the earth in fulfilling his apostolic calling. It is a long course of preparation in which he comes to know the Latter-day Saints wherever they may be, and they come to know him. The Lord tests his heart and his substance. In the natural course of events, vacancies occur in that council, and new appointments are made. Under this process, a particular man becomes the senior apostle. Residing latent in him and in his associate brethren, given to each at the time of ordination, are all of the keys of the priesthood. But authority to exercise those keys is restricted to the president of the Church. At his passing, that authority becomes operative in the senior apostle, who is then named, set apart, and ordained a prophet and president by his associates of the Council of the Twelve. There is no electioneering. There is no campaigning. There is only the quiet and simple operation of a divine plan, which provides inspired and tested leadership. I have been a witness, a personal witness, to this wondrous process. I give you my testimony that it is the Lord who selected Ezra Taft Benson to become a member of the Council of the Twelve almost 43 years ago. It is the Lord who over these years has tested and disciplined him, schooled and prepared him. At the death of the prophet he was ready not of his own choice nor of his own design. He was called, set apart, and ordained November 10th last. As one who knows him and who stands at his side, I bear witness that he is a man of faith, of tested leadership, of profound love for the Lord and his work, of love for the sons and daughters of God everywhere. He is a man of proven capacity who has been tempered in the refiner's fire. I am grateful for the privilege of association with President Benson in the sacred relationship of counselor to prophet. I am grateful for the association of President Monson. I am grateful that the First Presidency is fully organized and functioning unitedly together. 
Under President Benson's leadership, the work of the Lord will continue to move forward. No power under the heavens can deflect it from its course. We may expect that there will be some who will try. Their efforts will be like chipping away at a granite block with a chisel of wood. The stone will not be damaged, but the chisel will be broken. As Daniel declared in prophecy, the God of heaven set up this kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, and it shall stand forever. It grows because it satisfies the needs and desires of the human heart regardless of age, sex, race, or language. Speaking at this pulpit 100 years ago in 1886, Lorenzo Snow, then an apostle and later the president of the Church, said, A religious system is of but little account when it possesses no virtue nor power to better the condition of people spiritually, intellectually, morally, and physically. This gospel, when accepted and obeyed, meets the needs of men and women everywhere. It has the power to improve the individual in each of these categories—the spiritual, the intellectual, the moral, the physical. In his great intercessory prayer, Jesus declared, And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Such knowledge is the very foundation of spiritual strength. This is the great basic purpose of the restoration of the gospel, in this the dispensation of the fullness of time to declare the living reality of God, the Eternal Father, and of His beloved Son, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, to know them, to love them, to obey them, is to have life eternal. It is our mission to declare with words of soberness and truth that God is our Eternal Father, the God of the universe, the Almighty One and that Jesus Christ is His firstborn, the only begotten in the flesh, who condescended to come to earth, who was born in a stable in Bethlehem of Judea, lived the perfect life and taught the way of salvation, who offered Himself a sacrifice for all, enduring pain and death on the cross and then who came forth in a glorious resurrection, the firstfruits of them that slept. Through Him and by Him and of Him all are assured salvation from death and are offered the opportunity of eternal life. This is the great undergirding truth of our faith. It is the overarching canopy under which we find our spiritual strength. With this knowledge we grow spiritually, our spirits in kinship with the Spirit of God. It is the way out of darkness. It affords the strength needed to rise above sin. I recently received a letter from a man, a business executive. 
He told of the waste of his life in corrupt living, of the pain he had caused his loved ones. Then the influence of the gospel came into his life. I quote from his letter, I have come to know that I have offended greatly my Father in heaven and his Son. As I begin to better understand his great yet wonderful expression of love to me in Gethsemane, I have learned to be grateful for his atoning sacrifice and for the process of repentance. I have walked that bitter road of darkness and despair for so many years that I desire now only to come into the light. As I continue to read and ponder the scriptures and plead with the Lord for an understanding and forgiveness of my past, I have come to love him and never will I offend him again. I will always try to the best of my ability to pattern my life after him. This restored gospel brings not only spiritual strength, but also intellectual curiosity and growth. Truth is truth. There is no clearly defined line of demarcation between the spiritual and the intellectual when the intellectual is cultivated and pursued in balance with the pursuit of spiritual knowledge and strength. The Lord Almighty, through revelation, has laid a mandate upon this people in these words. Seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning even by study and also by faith. The other evening I picked up a new publication of the writings of Dr. Hugh Nibley, a man my age whom I have known and admired for many years. On the dust jacket of the book, I read these words. As a young man, he memorized vast portions of Shakespeare and studied Old English, Latin, Greek, and other languages. As a student at Berkeley, he began reading at the southwest corner of the ninth level of the library and worked his way down to the northeast corner of the first level, <laughs> studying every significant book that caught his eye. His encyclopedic knowledge has given him tremendous and well-deserved status among his peers. It also has made him a powerful advocate of the work of the Lord. His appetite for learning has been whetted by the gospel he loves. This Church spends a very substantial part of its resources to train the minds and hands of its young people. Whatever their choice of discipline, be it science, commerce, various of the professions, or the arts. A declaration of our faith reads, If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. This embraces the truth of science, the truth of philosophy, the truth of history, the truth of art. I emphasize the word truth. It is a principle set forth in our scripture that the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. The mind of man is the crowning creation of God in whose express image man was made. 
The development of the mind is a companion responsibility to the cultivation of the spirit, as set forth in the revealed principles of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Accompanying these and growing out of them is the development of moral strength. How sorely this is needed in the world in which we live. Were the standards of Sodom and Gomorrah worse than those of many of this generation? President Benson, in his opening address yesterday, called on us to repent. Fortunately, there are among those who walk in sin at least a few who have come to know that there is something better and who now long for forgiveness and an opportunity. I extract a few lines from the letter of one who was excommunicated from the Church because of aggravated, immoral behavior. He now writes, After I was cut off from the Church, the pain and torment were hell. I did not believe anyone could suffer such pain and still live. He then pleads for help to come back and expresses appreciation for those who are now putting their arms around him to give him strength. The Church is the guardian and teacher of moral values. Regrettably, there are some who disregard those teachings. Some are enticed by the reading of pornographic writings and the viewing of pornographic materials to set aside self-discipline and become involved in the quagmire of immorality. In too many cases, wives and children become their victims. I have previously spoken from this pulpit concerning child and spouse abuse. I repeat for emphasis an earlier statement. Abuse of children on the part of fathers or anyone else has long been a cause for excommunication from the Church. No man who has been ordained to the priesthood of God can with impunity indulge in either spouse or child abuse. Such activity becomes an immediate repudiation of his right to hold and exercise the priesthood and to retain membership in the Church. If there be any within the sound of my voice who may be guilty of such practices, let him or her repent and as a part of that process go to his or her bishop and confess, seeking help to do the right thing to remedy the evil. I repeat, one of the great purposes of this work as revealed by the Lord is to fortify against moral sin. To the degree that we accept and follow these teachings, we shall be a happy and blessed people. Finally, there is inherent in the doctrine, the teaching, and the practices of this Church those elements which will improve the individual physically. The body is the temple of the Spirit. It is God's creation as a part of His eternal plan. As I read and hear of the findings of modern medical science, I give thanks to our Creator for revealing unto his prophet what we call the word of wisdom. It sets forth in language spoken 153 years ago, principles now confirmed and taught by modern dietary science. 
With all of this he is given a divinely spoken promise, the like of which is found nowhere else. And all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones, and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. What a marvelous, remarkable, and unique statement of religious principle that is. It is a part of our doctrine given by an all-wise Father, our Creator, for our physical and temporal good. I am not saying the disease will not come, that death will not strike. Death is a part of the divine plan, a necessary step in the eternal life of the sons and daughters of God. But I do not hesitate to say that in this brief but inclusive statement of the Lord is found counsel given with a promise which, if more widely observed, would save untold pain and suffering and lead not only to increased physical well-being, but also to great and satisfying treasures of knowledge of the things of God. All of this of which I have spoken comes of the revealed word of the Almighty to bless His children. We invite you, wherever you may be or whatever your circumstances, to come and partake. God, be thanked for this glorious work, for this day of restored truth and light, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I bear witness of its divinity as I express unto you, my brethren and sisters, my love for each of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.